Hi, this is Ananda, President of the Hare Krishna Community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Vraja Bihari Prabhu, one of my favorite devotees in the world. And it's always a, a great homecoming, coming back to this temple. I lived here for some time, around 1976, and at other times, and I have great memories here. And thank you very much for coming today, and I look forward to being with you for a few minutes here to discuss the philosophy of Krishna consciousness. We'll start with some chanting, because this is the primary means for connecting to the supreme original divine source, Krishna. And I'll begin with an invocation mantra to the spiritual master, and then to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and chant Hare Krishna, and see if we can experience that communion that we get through transcendental sound singing together. I first offer my respects to my spiritual master, his divine grace, Hesi Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and to all of you, because you are Vaishnavas, um, and you're therefore the most worshipable of all. Hare Krishna. Nice to meet you. When I was a kid growing up in suburban Lafayette, California, I had a friend that lived across the street, just down one house, and he was a rascal. His name was Denny Scardacci. And Denny used to give me misinformation all the time. That's what made him a rascal, among other things. Denny once took a common weed that grows in California, and he opened it up, and inside there was a little white fiber. He said, look, this is where coconut comes from. <laughs> I said, wow, I never knew that. And I was going around telling all my friends, I found where coconut comes from. And then I told my dad. My dad said, that's not where coconut comes from. He said, who told you that? I said, Denny Scardacci. He said, Denny Scardacci is a rascal. <laughs> that's how I first knew he was a rascal. It's so easy to get misinformation in this world because oftentimes I don't take the trouble to verify where I got the information from. I read a book by a professor of rhetoric. The book was called How to Win an Argument. He made a profound statement. I don't remember um, a lot of the information in the book, some of it, but one thing that did stick in my mind was he said, when people have an argument, the problem is they forget what they're arguing about. And therefore the argument veers off in various directions. And it never comes to a real conclusion because they don't have a clear goal for their argument. Why are we doing this? And what is the actual argument the person's making? We often argue about something, a point that somebody didn't bring up. And this kind of misunderstanding, whether it's received from 
a Denis Scardacci-like entity? Or due to our own inattention, while we're arguing a point, or listening to a point, takes us adrift, and we end up not reaching our goals. So one of the essential principles of spiritual life, of course, of any discipline, is to know what you're talking about, and know why you're talking about it, and to have a clear goal. In our tradition, the Vaishnava tradition, much of which is based on evidence or axiomatic truths given in Sanskrit through ancient literatures, which are considered to be axiomatic truths. There's a, a phrase called a Siddhanta. Everyone say. Siddhanta. siddhanta. It means uh, to know what something is and also what it isn't. To be very precise about what the goal of life is and the means to get there. And therefore, in religious traditions, there's a very common fallacy that arises when people assume things or they begin to invent information that isn't originally there. There's a sort of drift into misunderstanding. There's a story which describes this. In fact, in religious organizations, there's a way in which oftentimes we perform rituals and we don't know why we're doing them. Is that possible? Anyone? So once there was a priest, and he was very serious about training his students in the ways of performing various ceremonies. One of them was a wedding ceremony, and it had many details to it. And his students were watching very attentively, taking down notes. And one day, there was a frisky little cat kept coming into the assembly hall where he was training his students. And the cat was playing with many of the items that they were using. And they would put the cat outside. But he found some crack in the building he was able to get in. And again, start interfering with the training. So the teacher finally took the cat very gently and put it in a basket. And he petted the cat until it went to sleep. And then he went on with the training. Some years later, the priest passed away and the students were expected to step up and take charge of the ceremony. They were doing their first one, in fact, collaborating together. And they were under some time constraints, so they were a little nervous. They had it almost set up, and one of the students sounded the alarm. Wait, we can't start this yet. And why not? He said, we don't have a cat in the basket. We've got to go find a cat. We've got to get a basket. We've got to make it go to sleep before we can actually successfully perform this ceremony. Oftentimes, with one of my godbrothers who I've traveled all over India with, gone to various temples in India, we see people touch a certain part of a railing or a stairway. In fact, it's been touched so many times, it's, there's a hole worn in it. And we always wonder, we look at each other, is that a cat in the basket? 
Or is there something behind that? We see too around us now uh, a very potentially holy festival going on, celebrating the the birth of Jesus Christ, pure devotee, an incarnation who came to rescue the world. And <clears throat> I, I'm seeing a lot of cats in the basket. I I actually looked up to see where a lot of the ceremonies come from and found out that there's been an ongoing debate about these things for some time, about what is the real Christmas and what are mixed in cats in the basket and various other kinds of observations. Whatever their original intent was, in most cases, including Santa Claus, and I found out something that shocked me this morning. If I'm looking a little peaked, that's why. He didn't originally wear red. He wore green. But the Coca-Cola company, in 1942, did an advertisement using the image of good old Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, maybe even somebody else. Somehow I've conflated the two. And they put him in red so they could sell their product, Coca-Cola. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm shocked. <laughs> I always thought that red and white were the official colors of Christmas. And then I heard shocking things about mistletoe, actually, that it used to be a tree, and there are some pretty gory details about how it was used as an arrow to kill some famous uh, superhero early on in the history of the world, and on and on. I, cu I couldn't absorb it all, but I did get the, the very clear idea that there's a lot of Denny Scardacciism going on in the world. Sorry, Denny, if you're watching. <laughs> We're still friends and everything. And so, in our teachings, the what are called the acharyas, those who set an example for us to tell us how to be effective in our practice of spiritual life, uh, tell us that there are principles we should stick to so we don't drift off into doing things that aren't actually related to reaching the goal of life. One of them is a, a saint named Srila Rupa Goswami, who lived at the time of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of Chaitanya, who was the, the main <clears throat> inspiration for our movement. It's the same teachings that have been brought down for thousands of years, but he re revitalized them, did Chaitanya, and brought them to light. And then he had students that he empowered, and, and he spent a good amount of time training personally, very qualified people, highly educated and and capable, and ask and he asked them to codify the teachings and pass them along. So that's very important to a tradition that you have codified teachings that you can follow. And there's a a primer on the practice of bhakti yoga. It's called the nectar of instruction, or in Sanskrit, upadeshamrita, the nectar of instruction. And in that book, Srila Rupa Goswami specifically mentions 
the phenomenon that I'm talking about, which is the tendency to either follow things without knowing what they're for and what they're about, being unaware if they're cats in the baskets, or actually related to my progress in devotional life, or on the other side, I might just abandon all kinds of regulations and rules and whimsically try my own or just think that I can get by without following the rules. It's neatly packed into one word. The word is niyamagraha. And due to Sanskrit rules, this word can be combined and then unpacked again very neatly. So niyamagraha means that one might not follow the rules at all. And niyamagraha means one may follow the rules very enthusiastically, but not know what they're for. And along the way, there's altogether a possibility of picking up things that were never meant to be followed in the first place. Because there's a tendency, I find, in the world for myself, and maybe others, to try to outdo others. And if they're doing it this way, I'll do it in a more fancy way. And in this way, somebody might see me doing it that way and think, well, I'll do it in an even more fancy or detailed way. And then we start to see trends that uh, we can't trace back. Someone just invented them or innovated a little too much. And then and we ended up with a drift going in another, in another way. So one of the ways... To, to be effective in the practice of spiritual life that I found is instead of trying to learn everything, at least learn everything about something. For instance, there are a lot of prayers. One of the main prayers is this Hare Krishna chant. The Chaitanya Mahaprabhu emphasized in it. If we read his teachings, he, he emphasized this as the main thing. So if I were to look into what is the main thing, I could find a lot of evidence that if I was to practice this chanting, both individually as a prayer and a meditation and congregationally as we do here often, then I would be right in line with the teachings of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But I might go further than that. I might look more deeply within the, the chant itself and think and find out what's it about. Why is it that it has some spiritual potency to it? And the more I could go into that, the deeper I could become in that particular practice. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was teaching his students, said this is a very effective way to move forward in, in spiritual life, is to be very deliberate in the practices that you do, and especially for those who are very busy. Anyone here? I'll take that as a yes. In fact, he said when teaching Sanatana Goswami, one of his main students, another one of them, that there are 64 items of devotional service that one could practice regularly. But then he quickly condensed that into five and said, here are five that are particularly potent out of the 64 
And if you keep in contact with these five, that you'll be able to advance in, in your practice of, of bhakti, of bhakti yoga, spiritual life. And then he said, out of those five, there's one that's particularly important. So if you concentrate on this one, then the rest of them, uh, you'll get the benefit for all of them. So thinking about the way in which, in human society, now we, have, we can see how Christmas is unfolding and there are a lot of different practices that people have employed. And if we asked any one person coming out of a, a Walmart, why are you doing all this? Uh, where does the tradition come from? They may not be able to tell us. And oftentimes we find ourselves in our lives caught up in many different kinds of traditions and activities that we don't really question. We simply follow it. Sometimes it's out of cultural momentum and sometimes it's out of fear, thinking that if I don't do this, then something bad might happen. So... Chaitanya Mahaprabhu recommends, don't live like that. Uh, so examine yourself. Examine your practice. Find out where it comes from. Uh, find out what are the most authorized sources of knowledge that you can uh, um, read from and hear from. And if you just apply it, then you'll be successful. So... <clears throat> In the Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is a book that contains the history and the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the author says, Siddhanta Bolaya Chitanakara Alash, Iha Hoite Krishna Lage Shudrad Manash. Shudrad Manash means in Bengali that uh, your mind will become very determined. Shudrad. Manash means mind. And how will it become determined and focused? If you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, or why you're doing it, you may not feel so inspired. And it's an easy trick, actually, to switch one's intention and look a little more deeply into one's practice. For instance, if one is attending a, a temple program like this, and there are some prayers being sung, uh, one might look into the prayers and say, what do they mean? Where do they come from? What am I actually singing? Uh, who, who wrote these? Why did he or she write them? And just doing that little bit of research, which it doesn't take that much, one will find Sudrid Manash, the mind will become focused and happy because you'll think, oh, I, I know what I'm doing and it'll, it'll have new life and meaning. So in the title of this short monologue, Unpacking Krishna, Christmas and Krishna, I thought to um, reflect on the way in which all kinds of communities, big and small, tend to drift. And individually we can do that as well. And one of the main tenets of spiritual practice is to take time to find out what you're doing. And Siddhanta Bolaya uh, means don't be lazy about it. This is the admonition given by 
the author of Chaitanya Charitamrita said, don't be alash, don't be lazy, but try to find out why you're doing it and where it comes from. And if you do that, then you'll be successful in your spiritual life and you'll feel very determined. And if you don't feel determined and you don't feel like you're making progress, this may, may be one of the reasons. There may be other reasons, but this, this may be one reason. What do you think? Who said yes? Yes. yes. Oh, Brother Vihari. <laughs> we paid him to say yes. We want to hear from the rest of you. <laughs> uh, does anybody else have a yes? yes? Okay. Then I'd like to hear why you're saying yes, because I'm following my own philosophy here. I don't want to just accept that you're saying yes. In fact, there was a, there's a story about um, a Muslim mullah, and he, he used to travel and give seven-day talks in various villages. And he was in this quaint village, simple people coming to listen to his lectures every day about the Quran. And he noticed uh, a woman in the audience that attended every day, and she would begin weeping, tears flowing down her face during the talks. After the seven days, when he was mingling with the people, she approached him to thank him very much for his talks. And he said, yes, and I'm very touched by you being in the audience because I noticed how much you were appreciating my speaking. And she said, oh, yes, yes. And he said, for my own edification, what is it especially that you liked about my talks? Was it the philosophy? Was it the way I delivered the talks? He said, no, not exactly. He said, well, please, tell me. He said, well, all right. In our family, for many years, we've had a pet billy goat. And it had this white beard. And you have a white beard. And just about two weeks before you came here, our billy goat died. And it's been very hard on the family. And when you speak, you're jaw moves and the your your beard wags and it reminds me of my dearly beloved pet billy goat and that's why I weep and it this is another aspect of this phenomena that we may not communicate with others they're enough to know what they're thinking and what their needs, interests, and concerns are and, and to discern what ours are as well. So in order to avoid that, although you've said yes, I'd like to hear why you agreed that this principle is sound. So, Braja Bihari Prabhu? We have microphones. Okay, we have microphones and we have until what? Um, we have until uh, two-ish. Two-ish, okay. And two-ish. Okay. <laughs> Yahoo. <laughs> so right now, if we could take, just, uh, if you could, this helps me a lot. If you could reflect back what you heard that stuck in your mind. Yes. You talked about the Hare Krishna Mahamantra being the main principal thing. And... I was also here in 1976 when you were here. So 
I have an issue with how the mantra is being changed and people are chanting the mantra. Yeah. And I know we didn't chant this way when Shoa Prabhupada was on the planet, but there's a lot of O's, Ramo. And I even on Facebook had someone who answered one of my posts on our Hari Nam with Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Hare Ramo, Hare Ramo. So I hear it all the time. I've even written a couple articles about it. But you want to address that issue, how the Maha Mantra is being changed? What should we do? I'm asking you. I, I, I mean, there's there's a sign right up there, and I don't see any O's anywhere in the mantra. This is an important point. We should be careful how we're uh, repeating mantras and try to represent the mantra the way it's written. I recommend this, and it's recommended in the scripture as well. However, I will say, because I go to Japan, uh, people... When you say an R in Japan, it comes out as an L. When you say an L, it comes out as an R. And they really can't help it. And it, also in China, there's a, a, a way in which when devotees who are very s sincere chant the Maha Mantra, they'll naturally uh, mispronounce. So in some cases, and, and the Shastra says that um, even if, if you accidentally mispronounce something, uh, especially the Maha Mantra, but you're sincere, then Krishna will understand what you're saying. However, uh, if one is stylizing and adding on some extra way to chant the mantra, or a new way, this may <clears throat> be a different case. The intention is very much different, and the result will be different. Thank you for bringing up that point, Prabhu. Okay, another point? Uh, reflection. Yes, so we said yes because whatever you said makes perfect sense. And uh, we practically observed that this is changing in every traditions because of culture or because of they want to invent something new. They want to help what you call make like this is like something mine. And that's why traditionally something changing and I think uh, we should not change too much. Follow the tradition which is perfect. Thank you for reflecting that. Just say that there's a there's an interesting other point that Prabhupada makes, an important point that he makes in the in his teachings about following and passing on what one's learned, and that is that one shouldn't try to surpass the previous teachers and introduce some new idea to say that uh, I know more. However, as one's representing what one's heard from the previous great teachers who have established um, the practice and, and the theology, synthesized it uh, and passed it down from uh, since antiquity, one should be sensitive to the audience that one's presenting to. Because although the message may be there uh, correctly, if, if one doesn't know how to deliver it properly, the audience may be um, not, not as receptive because people have their own sensibilities. They have 
a, uh, they have they're more receptive to certain ways of of delivering a, a particular message. And this way, uh, Prabhupada says this this ability to be able to represent what's been given to one the the bedrock principle that one's been given and, and pass that on without changing it, but doing it in an interesting way so that the audience can appreciate it. He says this is called realization. And that's why uh, the passing on of this information to others in the world is a very active process and it involves us mixing it up with people in the world and being aware of their needs, interests, and concerns and being able to deliver it in, in a way that they can appreciate it. A couple more... We usually, live with, we usually take uh, men and women, so... Yes. A lady? Question from the ladies? We have gifts and awards. <laughs> this, that's what's in this bag. There's good stuff in here. Okay, well, I if a, a question may be harder, but yes, we have one. I thought I saw... I won't put your ladies on the spot. But, uh, yes. Hari Kirtan, Prabhu. Green? Green, Hari Krishna. All right. Prabhu, thank you very much. Uh, what I heard you say, uh, you spoke about uh, Siddhanta. You asked us all to say it back, and it came back again in the verse from the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And you spoke about Niyamagraha and how you can take Sanskrit words apart and put them back together in order to gain a deeper understanding. So in order to understand why we're doing what we're doing, we can look to uh, the language that we are hearing. So Siddhanta, we usually translate as philosophical conclusion. I think we have a compound word, uh, Siddhi, uh, perfection, anta, end. So the perfect ending. So when one takes your advice and looks to various authorized sources of knowledge, we find different lineages. There are four different Vaishnava, some Pradayas, different lineages. There are many works that appear to be authoritative, sound authoritative to someone who is just learning. What is our criteria for understanding what actually constitutes a uh, perfect ending or a, a proper philosophical conclusion for us to therefore understand why we are doing what we are doing. Wow, what an articulate question. So expert. Thank you. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the main source of evidence, as we say, for our group of Vaishnavas, in the, at the outset, there's, uh, <clears throat> there are many statements given to address this point. One of them it's given by Sutta Goswami at the assemblage of sages at Naimasharanya, where he says, Savai pumsam paro dharmo yato bhaktira dhoksaje haitu kia pratiyata yayatma suprasiditi. And he continues, Dharma swanistita pumsam vishvakshena katasuya nutpariyad yadiratim shrama evihi kevalam. So he's describing how the practices that one, one, that one does. Um, and this is a result, actually, his answers are coming because the sages at Naimasarnya had gathered to perform a ceremony that would uh, bring good fortune. And when they, 
they met Sutta Goswami, which was in an interesting circumstance. His father, who had been sitting there uh, delivering the message, had been uh, basically, well, he was killed. And uh, he was replaced um, with, a, with another speaker who was his son, who was equally learned. So they had asked him a similar question. They said, Burini buri karmani shrotavyani vipagasha. There are many, many, many types of literatures, scriptures, that, this, that give uh, apparently conflicting information. Could you please give us the essence of that? Tell us what is the main purpose of all of these things. And they, they pointed out that you're qualified because you've studied them all. And plus, they said, you've, you've been a good disciple. You've pleased your spiritual masters. And therefore, you, you have a, a very intuitive way of understanding the scripture. You, in other words, he was a bona fide teacher. And then he, he said the, um, what, the essence of what I said in the, the last two verses I quoted, or the, the first two verses I quoted, was that um, the ultimate occupation for all humans is that by which they can please the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And this is... Um, done by performing devotional service that's unmotivated or uninterrupted. So when we say devotional service, we mean service to God that's not encumbered by a motive, a material motive. And that's also uninterrupted. It means that you can do it all the time. You can live in it, actually. And this is the gold standard. So we're not so hung up on the externals, or he's not, in presenting this. He's saying that if you're process is leading you to the means by which you can have you have a mood of serving God without any motive. You're not asking for anything in return. Only more service. Service for service. Serve selflessly. And also you can be in it all the time. It's not like you have two lives. That your your material life and your spiritual life and the two never the twain shall meet. But they're actually one. He said, if, you, if, you, if you're able to do this by following your process, your process is bona fide. And therefore, uh, we look at the result. At least this is one of the ways to look at it. Is what, is, what are we being led towards? What are we being told? I met a Jehovah's Witness in Japan, in Tokyo, about uh, 15 years ago. I was with my friend Satyadev Prabhu. We go to Japan regularly together. And as I was walking down the street, I saw some um, very friendly people distributing the Watchtower magazine, Jehovah's Witness. I always like to talk to them because they're really um, nice people and they're very organized. And I picked up a, two copies, two different cop editions of their Watchtower, and I brought it to the Govinda's restaurant to see what they had written about. And I was just commenting to my friend, Satyadev Prabhu, that uh, of all the different religious groups I meet, the Jehovah's Witness are the least flexible as far as discussing philosophical points. And just then, I mean, talk about coincidence, the, the owner of the restaurant, who is a Hare Krishna devotee, came up to us and said, oh, there's a man here who comes regularly, and I'm having discussion, with whom I'm having discussions, and uh, he's very interested in our philosophy. And he wants to talk to you. So we started talking to him, and he saw the watchtowers, so that was a, a good start. 
And then uh, he said, you know, I've been reading your books and I really appreciate the fact that it's service to God with no motive. He recognized that flavor. He said, you're not asking for anything. It's not to live an opulent lifestyle, but it's, it's emphasizing that we're serving God just because that's our eternal occupation. And then if, if you have that mood, then you're perfectly situated. And then he said, I also know that your, your group is very sincere. And I said, how do you know that? He said, because you're one of the most disorganized religious groups I've ever seen. <laughs> but you persist. You're so persistent. He said, don't worry. We were like that over 100 years ago also. And this uh, gold standard, one can apply uh, to any uh, teaching or process to come to the essence that does it teach pure service to God, which means we're not asking anything material, but we're asking for more service and that we can live, with, live in it always. I know there's a lot of different ways I could have answered that question, but in the time we have, I thought it would be the most useful, something that you know, we could all take away in our pockets to, to bring out and, and refer to. Um, now we have some... Yes. Thank you so much, Vaiseshik Prabhu. Uh, I answered yes to the question that I need to know what I'm doing because only when I know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, then it'll be a practice. If I do not know what I'm doing, and that too if I'm doing it on a regular basis, then it's a ritual. So I can expect a result only when I'm practicing it, knowing why, why am I doing it, and how should I do it, those questions. But without understanding, if I'm doing it on a ritualistic way, on a regular basis, I may not get any way close to the result, to the goal. So if I'm practicing, then there is a chance that I may get closer to the goal, and I'll feel more encouraged, and my faith will increase. But if I'm just doing it in a ritualistic way, I may be discouraged because I'm not getting any way close to the goal. And uh, um, the sad thing that can happen is I may lose faith in that practice, which is supposed to be done as a practice but not as a ritual. So it's very important that I need to know why I'm doing it and how I should do it, even if it's a small thing too. So that understanding is really crucial, that's why. You brought out such an important point. It's, uh, it's illegal not to make advancement. And, and this is one of the implications of the, the phrase, niyamagrahas, that you should take some responsibility for helping yourself and moving forward and, and actually applying yourself to the process. And a final point, uh, which will bring me exactly to 2 o'clock, which I'm going to actually end on that because I want to have a reputation here of ending exactly on time. And that is that our motive is important. You mentioned why we're doing something. And motive is, is something. It's not nothing. One might say, you know, what is motive? Can you show it to me? We feel it. In fact, I would argue that it's actually the most powerful force in the world. What our motive? What is our motive when we're doing something? I noticed this the other day when I was, I was looking through a web page. 
at some information I was trying to gather, and I saw a, something that looked similar to what I was trying to cultivate uh, for a research project, and it was a little box uh, that had uh, an article in it. But then at the bottom I noticed it said paid content. Paid content. And then I skipped it, and I thought, why did I just skip that? Because they want something from me. There's a different motive. Of course, I don't know what the motive the person put up the website is, but I noted my own reticence to engage with something where I knew they wanted something in return. And in a similar way, <clears throat> getting in touch with the motive, why am I doing this, is very important because that's the fulcrum of, of our own power in spiritual life. If we don't know anything else, or if we're not even sure of the rituals, but if we're very sure that our motive is to be in contact with the Supreme, then he'll hear us, no matter what our language is, even if we're an animal. Thank you very much. One second. Wait, wait, wait. That was it. I know, but because, <laughs> because our temple is so concerned about encouraging the future of our society, which is our youngsters, this young man has had his hand up forever. So why don't we give him one last statement, and then we'll call it a day. Yeah, we were saving the best for last. Yes. And by the way, he was, he was my wingman yesterday. We went on Sankirtan. We had about 35 devotees. We went out uh, uh, distributing books. And he was, uh, and has been for the last couple of years, uh, my right-hand man in helping to teach the mantra, both, both of these gentlemen, and teaching others the, the Maha Mantra after they've purchased the book. Please proceed. Thank you for what you just said, Prabhu. And... Um, I kind of stole this from one of the, um, uh, actually two lectures, one from you and one from Satguru. So, um, so one of the previous questions mentioned that um, the, there are more than one scriptures. What's the use? For, what, what's the purpose of them? So I, I thought about this and realized this one fact. Why do we have to um, why do we have to break things up in several different parts, like the Srimad Bhagavatam? Instead of one big part, why, why is it so many small little parts? Like similarly, if a, if you take a piece of brain out of your brain, a piece out of your brain you might feel a little bit relaxed. Then why not just blow it all out? <laughs> but in that way, we can just float around in peace. Hey, what's your so, answer um, to that? <laughs> so why do we always... Just for the record. Why do we, why do we always have to... Um, why do we always have to break things up in several different parts? And then well, first of all, it's more interesting. Because we like variety. If you if you um, notice that we're attracted to to a variety of things, variety is the mother of enjoyment. And another very practical reason that the Vedas are broken up into many pieces because there are many different kinds of people, and the, the Vedic project is a big project. It encompasses all of human society, and that means there are various classes of people who are affected by the modalities of nature in various ways. 
and they have a different prescription. If you go to the doctor and the doctor just gives the same prescription to every person, does that make any sense? Yeah, then that's, of course, I know you already knew the answer. There was a rhetorical question, but for the sake of closing this conversation, I'm just um, bringing out what I think that you were saying, and that is that there are various ways in which people need uh, prescriptions, and they come through various parts of the Vedas, and that's even a bigger conversation. And thank you very much, Rajabuhari Prabhu, for tacking on an extra five minutes <laughs> to this talk. That, that and, talk is fast. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you.